Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm your host, Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we are very lucky to have many jazz musicians and singers who have performed for most of their lives and some right into their 80s and 90s. It's always amazing to hear their stories, and in this show, we will hear from several jazz legends from previously recorded interviews and live concert performances. We'll learn about their start in the jazz scene, their high points and challenges, and finally, their continued passion for this art form. Our musical guests are familiar to many, and we hope that by the end of this broadcast, you will know them even better. I invite you to sit back and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends, Dick Bortolucci, Nancy Lovgren Lovendowski, Clyde Anderson, Tom Tipton, Jimmy Hamilton, Herb Pilhofer, and Dave Carr. Bassist Clyde Anderson, one of our Minnesota jazz legends. He's performed with the Golden Strings and all over the Twin Cities. He's also an educator, and he has many stories of what life was like for him as one of the first called bass players. you have quite a history that I want people to know about. You did the Golden Strings, but you go way back into teaching and many other things. Where are you from originally? Uh, way back is right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm from Minneapolis, North Minneapolis, and uh, grew up there and even taught school in Minneapolis later on. Did you go right to upright bass? No, I played violin when I was young. Then I played piano. And I started playing bass in high school. The reason, <laughs> the reason where I got started, I was playing violin, and we had a substitute teacher. And you know what happens with subs? Everybody fools around, and everybody went to play different instruments. And there, <laughs> and there was a girl playing the bass, and I kind of wanted to talk to her. So I got up and played a bass next to her, so I could be next to her and talk to her. And from then, uh, from there, I got interested in playing bass, and my mother called up McPhail School of Music to find out who was a bass teacher, and it happened to be Cliff Johnson, who was newly in the Minneapolis Symphony at those days. Uh, Gordy Johnson, this wonderful bass player that you're hearing tonight, uh, his father, uh, he was my first bass teacher, and that's how I got started playing. And... Uh, I was, you know, doing what we call jobbing around here. I got a call. Uh, uh, one of the bass players, Bernie Sundermeyer, who was one of the busiest bass players in town, got sick, and they said, could you play a couple of his jobs? So I, uh, I was 19, and I said, well, sure. So the first job was, uh, it was eight sessions a week at the Curtis Hotel, 6.15 to 8.15. We had an eight-piece orchestra, very formal, while we played pretty much theater music kind of semi-classical, and uh, the stocks, the uh, popular songs of the day, too. And then the Anglesey Cafe over on 14th and Hennepin from 9 o'clock to 4 to 1. So can you play these two jobs? I said, all right. So I went, put on a tuxedo to play the first job, and then changed into a suit to play the nightclub. However, at the same time, I was a full-time student at the university, and on top of that, this was in the fall of the year, I was playing in the uh, university football band. I was playing saxophone in the band. And we rehearsed, I think it was three afternoons a week from about 4.30 to 6. So I got excused at 5.30. I think I could jump in the car and get there and change into my tux so I could start that first job. So it got to be kind of long days. 
Uh, and that was when I would have my mother fix me two bag lunches. So I'd eat one at noon and one on the car during, going downtown. And that's how I started playing full-time in the... Uh, uh, Minneapolis area. So you hit the ground running, basically. Uh, I think I did. <laughs> yeah, I think you did, too. So you're a, a young man at that age. I was 19 at that time. 19 at that time. Yeah. So then you did graduate from the University of Minnesota, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. After that, I, I went into the Army for a while. I played in the 7th Army Symphony, uh, where our first big job was the Brussels World's Fair in uh, 1958. <laughs> and uh, we toured Europe. I came back and then got back into the music business and went to grad school at the university. Oh, well, how fun. So you stayed here and you became a teacher, is that right? I taught school in uh, Hopkins for, I think it was 18 years. Then I went uh, taught in Minneapolis for seven plus years. I enjoyed that. I mostly taught strings. But during that time, I was always playing a lot. Sometimes I was playing in clubs and then sometimes I was doing the jobbing various jobs, society jobs, and whatever came along. We Can played. you remember some of the names of the clubs that you played? Well, I said when I was 19, I played at the Anglesey, and from there we went to this Point Supper Club, went in Golden Valley with another group. That's where we did a little bit of the... Then I went back to the Anglesey full-time in uh, 1956, and I was still in school full-time. From there, oh gosh, I've been played so many clubs, I can't remember all of them. A little bit later, I came out of the Army. I went to Duffy's with Russ Moore, very fine drummer. Mm -hmm. I was there for a while. And then uh, I think I went back to the Anglesey for a while. Where was that? Because I don't recognize the name of that place. The Anglesey? Yeah. 14th and Hennepin. Okay. It was a great place. And there were uh, two people that owned it, and it was a great place for food and for um, okay. entertainment. When I think about you and all of your careers that you have done through the years and the shows that you've done, is there anything that stands out in your mind? Well, in later years, I did a lot of Golden String things with Cliff Brunzel and did some touring with him. They were always kind of fun because we'd get in the cars and drive and drive and drive and then play. And musically, that was good. Larry Malmberg, this wonderful accordionist, was playing on the tours. And that was fun. That was great. He was wonderful. Yes. Now, you did some music with him. You recorded with uh, Larry Momberg in the end of the 50s, did you tell me? Okay. When I got back to the Anglesey full-time in 1956, we had some of the different players than what they were in 1954 when I first played there. By this time, Larry Momberg was playing accordion, Dick Reimer on drums, mm -hmm. Jerry Hendrickson was the leader violinist and also sang, and Dick Reimer did some recording and uh, taped right on, on the bandstand. And then later years, he made a CD out of it. This was 1956, 60 years ago. So who's on the bandstand here? All right, Jerry Henriksen, the leader, uh, Larry Morgenberg on accordion, Dick Reimer on drums, and myself on bass. Then. Oh, the band was there for 12 years, I think. Wow. Know. That's when we worked six nights a week. 
the union, the musicians' union, had had a contract with the what they call the On Sale Liquor Dealers Association. So we worked 25 hours a week. We got two weeks paid vacation a year, and you just go in a place and you'd stay there. And the band at Murray's, I think, was there longer. But uh, <laughs> well, that's pretty fun. Now, who did you go out and see? Well, if there are different groups playing in town, we would go go out and see them. I remember at the uh, Flame uh, nightclub on, uh, I remember going down there and Count Basie was there for a week. I think I was there every night that week. In fact, I met him <laughs> at a restaurant later on one of those nights, you know, things like that. Uh, Mary McPartland came through town back in the mid-60s, I think, and needed a bass player. I played with her for three weeks downtown. That was an experience. That was wonderful. In fact, your parents came down to hear us play. So, are you working much these days? No. <laughs> I've finally come to the point where uh, I've just gotten tired of the playing. Well, many of the people that I worked with and that hired me are, are dead or too old to play. So, I'm being honest about it. I'm actually enjoying not playing. You're enjoying retirement? Yeah, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, Clyde, I have a favor to ask you. Sure. Would you play anyway today? I'll play a tune. Okay, great. <laughs> Clyde Anderson, let's bring the trio back out.
Ladies and gentlemen, Clyde Anderson. You are listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Dick Bortolucci, drummer extraordinaire, was one of the featured performers for the live concert of the Minnesota Jazz Legends. The list of people he has performed with is outstanding, and the friendships he has made remain today. Dick is more than a master at his craft. His driving sense of humor and sensitivity to all things musical have made him an integral part of Minnesota's music scene for years, both on and off the stage. Mr. Dick Bortolucci.
I'm gonna invite Dick Bortolucci back out to the stage. You know, you have a story about coming here from Canada. Yeah. What year did you come here? 1960. 1960. Yeah. What brought you here? Well, I got tired of playing with all the polka bands, <laughs> and I was, I was listening to jazz. My uncle was really into jazz, and he'd like, uh, I'd be like nine years old, and he'd tell me, listen, listen to the Benny Goodman Quartet, big band. Then he got me into Stan Kenton and that, and I'm only like 10, 11 years old. And finally, I, I really got into Krupa. I liked, I liked Krupa with uh, Teddy Wilson and that. I finally, I came into town and I seen Tommy O'Donnell and Georgie Avalos, who's still my favorite. Georgie is my favorite. He got me into that ride. I couldn't believe that ride rhythm that Georgie had. And so then I, got, I heard another trio I thought, I gotta come down here and study, you know. So I came down and got with the Jim Trost trio, and we wound up going on the road with Tony Lee Scott. She was just as crazy as uh, Anita, you know, Anita O'Day. Okay. Ooh, very stormy, very oh. stormy. Yeah. And wow. She said to the guys, I want you to learn all the lyrics of all the songs. And I said to her, why, 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 do you, why do we have to know the words to the song? We know the tunes, why do we have to? Because when I sing blue, I want to hear some blue behind me. Wow. Yeah, right then we learned all the lyrics. But sometimes doesn't learning the lyric in a tune make it that you play it a little more sensitively, whether it's louder or... First you gotta know the tune. Yeah. And then you gotta live the lyrics. You gotta, yeah. you gotta sing the lyrics like you went through it, whatever right. is, you know? Right. You had to get sad. We'd cry, she'd make us cry. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. So what year is that? That would be, that's in the 60s, okay. early 60s. All right. See the clubs in town, like the White House is my favorite because they had a house trio and then they'd bring in NAMAC, Brazil 66, you name it, they came through there and, and we'd have to alternate with them. That's how I hooked up wow. with Teddy Wilson. Okay. You know. White and House was located where? That was in Golden Valley. Okay. Yeah. And that was really something, boy. That, that club was, all the greats came through there. And then uh, Herb's downtown, that place, it was, there were so many places. The avenue was all jazz, all jazz. As Bobby far as Lyle, all those guys were talking. Hennepin Avenue? Yeah, on Hennepin, yeah. Yeah, okay. Working all the strip joints. That's where all the work was, yeah. Yes, folks, that oh, yeah. happened. Is that politically correct? Yeah, yeah hey, if, okay. if it's the truth, it I is. I can tell it the way it really was if <laughs> you want to hear that. But I also heard that music almost went round the clock. People in big bands were playing, they'd come in and yep. they'd sit in. Yep. That music would go to four and then you'd go to another place and the music was still going on. It was going all the time. I mean, now you never see anybody. I seen Dave Carr today, I couldn't believe it. I thought he was retired in Florida somewhere. <laughs> Another good place was uh, on Lindale Avenue, the Blue Note. Oh, man, that was something. They'd have that Blue Monday, start at noon, and go till, till closing. There'd be like horn players lined up all the way down the, the street to come in and take a couple choruses apiece. No kidding. Bobby Lyle Trio. So it was just oh. that big of a deal? The trio was that smoking? Oh, and... I bring guys, uh, like I brought uh, Alma Jamal's guys in there. I brought uh, 
uh, all kinds of guys, uh, monks, guys, they said, these cats should be in New York, man. Wow. There's nothing like that in New York. But I want to talk about you now. You did some tours as well. Jazz was kind of falling down a little bit, and rock and roll was coming in. And I hooked up with Al Jarreau, and we went on tour. Uh, we were warm up for like Steppenwolf and Canned Heat. Wow. Unbelievable. That was another new life. That's when I got percussion concussion from those big amps. Yeah. I mean, you'd be, I'd be hitting like this, and I couldn't hear that note. Oh, man. And my pants would be going like this from those. Like, wow. Whatever the guitar player was playing, my pants would go like this. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And uh, Steppenwolf, Canned Heat, oh. Bo Diddley. Yeah, Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry. I did yeah? a concert with those two, both of them. Oh, my oh, gosh. St. Paul, yeah, it was there. Talk about the music scene um, as it progressed then. You were doing rock. Did you get back into jazz? Yeah, I, I got a little bit into it, but I started Cliff Brunzel, the Golden Strings, which took the jazz thing away from me because I wasn't working with the jazz thing. Oh. But the money was good. You know, all these years I did it on music alone. I didn't have two jobs, so I, I, that's the way I was doing it. I'd have like three sets of drums going so I could run from one to the other. And the jobs were like, you didn't go one-nighters. Six months, two years, you were working all the time. When you think about your life, do you have any particular experience that stands out? You know, I can remember when I was still living up in Thunder Bay, we used to go to this place that was called the Polish Picnic Grounds, where the Polish VFW would have their picnics, and you had to lift this thing off, the, off a tree to get your cars in there, and they had a little dance floor, and we'd park all the cars around and tune in on the AM station from Chicago and that, and we'd be listening to the same tune, you know. And all these tunes, like Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, that's where we heard them up to all this stuff. They weren't playing that stuff up there. And so when I came down here, uh, uh, Vornell Fournier was a drummer with uh, Ahmad Jamal that I really liked. In fact, I wrote a letter to the announcer, and he found out that the symbol that he was using, I couldn't figure out it was a sizzle symbol, you oh, know? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I still got that symbol all these years. I met Vornell. I hung out with him in Chicago. Stuff like that. And I'm yeah. going, how did this happen? Here I'm in this Polish picnic ground listening to these guys, and now I'm sitting here talking to them. And Tony Lee Scott lived in, in, in Chicago, and she would have you know, like Red Norvo's band over, she'd make spaghetti and meatballs on Sunday. All these, all these guys would come over and tell stories. And she introduced me to uh, the godfather there that owned the club. All he said to me was, hey, you take care of her, okay? You take care of her, you be good to her. And he'd have these two guys that would sit in the corner. Then uh, Armand, the piano player, he was playing the horses all the time. So I said, I'll give you 10 bucks, you bet for me. So all of a sudden, those guys found out I was giving him money, see, because he was getting in the hole and had uh -oh. to pay them back. Uh -oh. So they called us over and they said, hey, Armand, if you take any more money from this kid, we're going to hurt you. You owe us money. Don't get him sucked in on this. So then wow. they, they came in. Once I got to know them, they, they sit there and they say, hey, Dick, look at this. My little girl, confirmation, last Sunday. I said, oh, yeah, really? Then the other guy goes, look, my, my son, First Communion, last Sunday. So finally I thought I knew them good enough. I said, 
If somebody walks through that door from another family or whatever you were feuding with, you'd like that. I said, mm-hmm. I said, how can you show me those pictures? And you could do, that's what we do. That's our job. I called my dad. I said, you won't believe these guys, man. When you see them come in with their girlfriends yes. and the girlfriends call you over and they want to buy you a drink and do that, mm-mm. You say you got to go and rehearse in the back because they just want to start a fight. That's all oh, they want to do. Okay. You know what I mean? So they give you the rules. I mean, Washington should do that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Bertolucci. I'm your host, Patty Peterson, and you are listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Welcome to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. I'm your host, Patty Peterson. I invite you to sit back and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends 
Tom Tipton, the beloved jazz singer, started singing gospel in Washington, D.C. at age five. He made his way to Minnesota, and his story is so interesting. He's been chosen to sing for dignitaries and for many churches around the world. Let's hear the story of Tom Tipton, Minnesota jazz legend. people here who have fallen in love and still do.
and I'll never fall in love in a restless world like this is love is in dead before it's begun and the many moon like kisses seem to come at the warm of the sun Give me a break. I'm 82 years old now. No, come on nice. now. Come on. I, how long have you been singing? I started singing when I was five years old. My mother was a music teacher. Now, you were singing mostly in churches, you told I me, right? I started out in churches. Okay. And uh, I was singing with a group called the Golden Jubilees from high school. And then we fell into a quartet, and that changed my life in that area because we did about 30 to 40 churches in the period of a year, that was a lot. People enjoyed the old hymns, the sound of the old hymns. Then I went on to college and I didn't sing at all. I played basketball and played football and ran track and I loved it. How did you segue from gospel-oriented music into jazz? It was as a kid. Okay. I heard the music, but I didn't know what to do with it. And I found in high school as I went to college, Count Basie and those names start popping and I started listening to those songs. And I said to myself, hey, I can do this, why not? And so I gave it a lift in my heart and all of a sudden I was singing these hymns that you look at when I fall in love. And I right. fell in love. With jazz? With you and jazz. <laughs> You're so cute. How did you get to Minneapolis? Good question. I uh, was working for Hubert Humphrey in Washington, D.C., and he was running in the campaign for president in 1968. He said to me, following the campaign, Tom, I think you should move out to Minnesota. And I looked at him and I said, no, I can't do that. I can't leave Washington, D.C. Are you kidding? He said, why not? I said, it's too cold. So he said, well, get some long underwear and come anyway. So I did. I got off the plane. I've been here 44 years. Here you are. You're working on the Hubert Humphrey campaign, but you're a singer. How did you incorporate singing back into your everyday life? I could feel the music in me. I could feel the music coming out of me. Church was first. Singing the wonderful jazz things got to me. And all of a sudden, I couldn't stop. I didn't give up my gospel, but I started singing jazz more and more and more. I had to find something else to do besides singing. So I opened an advertising agency, which I did for 20 years. And I was lucky that we did that and still sang my songs. And in that time, 
I went to uh, 17 countries around the world with a man named Peter, but then the music crept back into me again. Uh -huh and I had no choice. So here I am, still singing a little jazz. You found yourself singing with Billy Wallace, a fine pianist, at the top of... Hilton Hotel. In downtown St. Paul, and just the cream of the crop, musicians and singers up there. How long were you there? I was there with Billy for 12 years, and I had to work. I had three children to feed, the whole 90 yards. I loved it, but the music kept me going. The music kept me moving. The music gave me a sense of peace. Not only were you singing jazz and you had that wonderful job, but I think it's really important to tell people that you've also had the opportunity to sing these wonderful hymns with a very, very popular Sunday television host. I had the honor of singing at the funeral of Hubert Humphrey. And at the funeral, I sat next to a lady. I didn't know who she was. She said, Mr. Tipton, if you're ever on the West Coast, we'd love for you to come to our church. And I looked at her and I said, well, I won't pass this up. And from that moment, 36 years, I did 114 appearances on the Hour of Power. Thank God. For That's the Crystal Cathedral, that isn't it? That was the it? Crystal Cathedral. And Robert Schuller. Robert Schuller changed my life. One of the most incredible human beings I'd ever met. Yes. <laughs> Tom Tipton, how old will you be on your next birthday? I'll be 83 years old on my next birthday. Mr. Tom Tipton, once again, what a wonderful world. days and the dark sacred nights and I hear say I think of myself I see the trees are green red roses too I see them bloom for me and Oh, it's a wonderful world You see the colors of the rainbow So pretty in the sky And I see on the faces Of all people passing by And I see friends and whole Singing, how do you do? What they're really saying is we all love you. I babies cry and I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than we'll ever know. And I say to myself, what a wonderful world. You are listening to the Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. Our next Minnesota Jazz Legend is pianist and educator, 
Mr. Jimmy Hamilton. Welcome to the show, Jimmy Hamilton. How are you today? Fine, thank you, thank you. You have made such an impact here in the Twin Cities, and we want to just say thank you so much and let people know what life was like for you as a musician and where you got your start. So where were you born? Were you not originally from the Twin Cities, are you? No, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. One of my favorite childhood playmates at that time was a young lady by the name of Ruth Jones, who later moved to Chicago. Nowadays, you can uh, research her under the name Diana Washington. Diana Washington? I was two or three years older than she at the time. But then uh, music became more serious when I went to Tennessee State in Nashville. I ran into a young man by the name of Phineas Newburn. He was uh, a couple of years ahead of me in school, and uh, we both had the same piano teacher. And I would go in a half hour ahead of time just to hear him play, doing things like Cherokee for left hand only. And he would take Beethoven sonata books and music books of a Chopin and just sight read them. It just amazed me. So when you were at the university, were you there four years? Four years, and I, a couple of graduate classes. I left in summer of 56. Uh, my freshman year at Tennessee State, I had a roommate named uh, Hank Crawford at the time to play the alto sax. I got a call from Hank one day to uh, go into the Ray Charles band and uh, sub uh, the uh, baritone saxophone player for a couple of weeks. Now, wait a minute. Baritone sax? I thought you were piano. <laughs> yeah, in fact, um, my concert, uh, my senior year, was given on alto sax and piano. So the Ray Charles Band? Yes. How long were you uh, a sub there? Just for two and a half weeks, technically. What was that like? Uh, Musically, it was great, but uh, you never knew which Mr. Charles would show up from time to time, depending on the previous night or whatever. There were some great musicians in the Ray Charles Band. Can you name some of them? Newman on saxophone. Okay. Uh, Hank, of course, wrote the arrangements and uh, played alto sax. John Hunt played trumpet, but it was a very good band. Did you want to stay with them? I would love to stay there just for the musical experience, but uh, I told my dad after two and a half weeks that I'm going back to Tennessee State and I'm going to stay until I graduate. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, I learned a lot about life from being on the road with Ray Charles' band, that's for sure. Some things I can't repeat. But I'll tell you one thing, the arrangements by Quincy Jones, even uh, back in those days, uh, even Alexander's ragtime band was just a swinging arrangement. So that's what you were playing. Were were they mostly Quincy Jones' arrangements Uh, in the Ray Charles' band? Mostly Quincy Jones' arrangements and... uh, I think I met Quincy twice. He would come on on the band for one or two days and travel with the band if he was introducing a new arrangement. And, of course, Ray was a hell of a player, too. Good piano player. But I did uh, some organ work and uh, mostly baritone sax. I was supposed to play alto originally, but uh, I left that to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> so did you just say that you played some organ with him, too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. So you got to utilize your keyboard chops yeah, working with the Ray Charles Band. Yeah. So you went back to college, and were the bands at college uh, wonderful musicians as well? Was that well worth it? I think at that time, uh, we had a very good stage band. We didn't realize how good it was until we had to compete and uh, 
Did you win some contests then? Uh, we won second place in the contest at uh, Notre Dame University yeah, at that time. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. You got to the Twin Cities, but you went elsewhere first, correct? <laughs> yes. Uh, I had just started my master's program at Michigan State in East Lansing. But anyway, my wife and I stopped in the Twin Cities to see some of her relatives, and um, we were on our way to Denver at the time. And I ran out of money and decided to stay in the Twin Cities for a while. I got my first gig playing at the Poodle Club on Hennepin Avenue. At the that Poodle, time. oh yes. my. It was a good introduction to the Twin Cities because uh, on the breaks uh, we would go down and hear other bands play at the time. I think Doves. But they had a band across the street with Ronnie Newman and oh, sure. some other musicians. And Prince Dad, of course, was playing down the street at the Rowing Twenties, John Nelson. But the music scene, as far as live entertainment, was great at those days. I heard there were a lot of gigs, and they were up and down. The Avenue is what they called Hennepin, The Avenue. Yes. Did you know uh, some of the names of the clubs besides the Poodle? The White House, of course, on the Olson Highway was big in those days. Dykeman Hotel had a live band. I would say uh, one of the highlights in the early days in the Twin Cities was getting the opportunity to uh, work in the Carlton Celebrity Room. Where Mall of America is yes, now, Carlton but, Celebrity Room, right. Yeah. I had a chance to do shows like Sammy Davis and uh, Robert Goulet and the late Joan Rivers and Roger Dangerfield and Gladys Knight and the Pips and Steve Allen, I should say, and Jimmy Dean. I first met Jimmy Dean in Nashville, and then I was surprised when I found out he was coming to the Scotland Celebrity Room. But I, I knew a few country songs in those days, haven't stayed around uh, Nashville for four to five years. When were you in Nashville then? Was it out of college? 54 okay. to 58, 59. And uh, Jimmy Jean asked me, Boy, how did you learn how to play all these songs, Jimmy? I said, well, uh, you stay around Nashville for four years, man. You learn these songs if you want to eat. But anyway, that was a great experience, except for one or two experiences with Dion Warwick. Let me mention another young lady, too, I backed uh, was Charo. Uchi girl, who now lives in Hawaii. But here's a young lady that spoke five languages. But her persona on stage, of course, she played the dumb idiot all the time. Yes. She came across that way. But then I found out she could speak five languages. Man, what a big difference. She got the audience fooled, you know. When you were at the Carlton Celebrity Room, did the artists simply show up with their charts? What was that like for you? They pass out arrangements. You had to be a good sight reader because oftentimes you didn't have a chance to go back and uh, make any corrections, you know. If the conductor was a pianist, oftentimes he would give you a chance to try the charts first to see how, whether you could cut it or not. And often he would just conduct and let you play. I remember doing um, Steve Allen when he was in town, and they had two grand pianos set up on stage. And during rehearsal, Steve Allen came over to me and said, don't show me up. <laughs> he was a good, uh, funny guy, too. Good songwriter, yeah, too. Yeah, smart guy, too. Had a good arrangement, I think, uh, Steve was a nice guy, yeah. So Steve and Charo and Ray Charles, wow, you've had a uh, star-studded life, and here you are still in the Twin Cities. I also recall uh, I had a trio when the Marriott Inn first opened, 
at that time. Uh, Judy Perkins was the vocalist, Percy Hughes' wife, and uh, Bob Damon was the bass player, and Freddie Edlin. Uh, the gentleman used to own the uh, Thunderbird Hotel. Rodney y- Wallace yes. used to come over sometimes and sit and play drums with us. Thunderbird was another place for great music. Sure was. We're but, speaking uh, with Jimmy Hamilton here, great jazz pianist here on the Jazz Legends, and uh, talking about what music and life has been like for him, well, throughout his life, but even since he got to Minneapolis area and... Uh, you were a teacher in the Twin Cities as well, right? Yes, uh, Minneapolis Public Schools for 28 years. Which schools were you at? I started at Bryan Junior High, North High for one year, back to Central High School in Franklin Junior High, I think. Were you always a band teacher? A band teacher was the title, but I tried to introduce music theory and the business of music. My philosophy was uh, anybody can pick up a guitar and start strumming and learn how to play. Uh, can teach themselves, but so many people do not know uh, music theory. Which chords should, musically should uh, go to another chord? But just things that you don't pick up unless you have somebody to point you in the right direction. So I think that's what turned on uh, a lot of musicians like Andre Simone and Prince and some of the others, Vernon uh, Tinsley and Bobby Watson. Were they open to learning about theory? Because you just named a bunch of students, uh, young men who were could really use their ear very well. Yeah. Yes, they were. Bobby Watson, I, I consider him one of my prize pupils. The ear was what separates the men from the boys, of course. Guys like Prince had big ears. They could hear. I used to call roll, in fact. I would, would say, sing me the note A. Taught kids, I said, you got to learn A440. Got to hear the note itself. Sing a B flat. Boom. You know, sing an E flat, you know. Did these kids do that? Yes. Yes. They started on seventh grade doing that. You oh, know? man. So sing me an interval, an interval uh, octave. And I said, I use examples like uh, somewhere over the rainbow, from that note to the top note is an octave, you know. Right. And I said, put that in your memory bank, you know. Sing me a perfect fourth. Here comes the bride as a perfect fourth. Here comes the bride as a fourth. Sing me a interval of a third, major third. How's a Montezuma? Yeah, I made examples like this. Sing the six, you know, my bunny lies over the ocean. And so I told them, you got to learn how to hear before you can play anything, you know. So you had uh, these students w- that t- went on to great success for many years of their junior high and high school, it sounds like. I didn't realize that at the time, but yeah, you have to fight so many other things in public schools. I was lucky. I had, I don't know, I came along at the right time or not, but especially when I got to Central High School. The year I first started at Central, they had 20, uh, 25 kids registered for band. I wanted at least 80 chairs for the students here. And Jonathan laughed at me, and I said, my first year at Central, I recruited uh, eight or some students the first year, and they grew into about 300 when I left Central, you know. Central was how many years of your teaching? Central was about seven or eight years here. Okay, I want to talk about your recording um, career, because you were active in the music community here in the Twin Cities and played some beautiful places, including the Lafayette Country Club for quite a long time. 
You also uh, recorded on Connie Evingson's CD. You have a solo CD out. Um, when did you uh, decide it was time to make a CD? I think after teaching four or five years, I decided to make a CD. And I had some people like yourself and uh, Debbie Duncan, who did uh, a couple of years at Lafayette, a Jazz in July performance. I'm proud of the CDs. Well, and it was a big deal. It was the 100th anniversary of the Lafayette Country Club, too, right? Yes, exactly. You're listening to an interview with pianist and educator Jimmy Hamilton, one of our Minnesota jazz legends. That's really fun. Now, you also did a CD that had Gordy Johnson. You were live on that CD as well. Cooking right? at Dakota, yes. An enjoyable experience doing the CD. I had Joe Police on drums. And another gig, too, I should mention, uh, in the Twin Cities, I played the Hilton in northeast Minneapolis when Joe Police was still in, the, in college in those days. But uh, we had great fun working there, and we had some musicians to stop by from time to time. Great hotel, great guests, good place to work, too. You've worked with Joe Police quite a bit, even on your recordings, right? Yes. uh, One story uh, about Joe Police and his brother played drums with Carmen McRae. Carmen McRae. Yeah. But uh, I first recognized Joe Police. I worked in the State Fair Orchestra when uh, Ray Comiskey was the conductor. And Joe played drums a couple of years, I think. And I said, boy, this kid can rate. (laughs) Ooh, what a player. We hooked up together and finally made a couple of CDs with Gordy. I first met Gordy Johnson in New Orleans, of all places, when he was playing with Maynard Ferguson at the time. And I introduced myself. I'm from the Twin Cities. We struck it up and formed a great friendship at the time. I say meeting Joe Police and Gordy Johnson, some of the other musicians in town, but those two particularly stand out. It's some of the highlights from the Minneapolis days. Of oh, I love it. Playing and recording. When you think about your career, when you take a look at it, is there one experience that stands out? So I had Bobby Watson for one year at Central High School, who is now uh, a jazz teacher in the University of Missouri. Truthfully, if you had something to tell young students, what would it be? First of all, try to find a teacher that can inspire you as far as taking some classwork and some notes in the, not only the history of music, but uh, the theory of music. And uh, find an inner urge to practice, practice, practice. You don't have to do eight hours a day, as the, uh, some people say. You can break it up, you know, one or two hours at a time. I would say in the music business, you have to learn how to read, some people can get up on stage, and Prince was self-taught. I mean, he, I gave him piano lessons, but he could play guitar better than I could, you know. But when it came to music theory and all of that, the history of music and uh, business of music, you have to try to make kids aware of that. So you get that from your teacher, you know. You can't do everything by yourself. I don't think young kids want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> 
How long did you serve in the Army? About three and a half years, I would say. I was in the uh, Special Service. I was stationed in Okinawa, playing in the Okinawa band, and uh, the gentleman that was over Special Service came to Okinawa and heard me practicing in the band room there. <clears throat> invited me to come back to Washington, D.C. to audition for a Special Service Unit to go out and play a 14-month tour of the world. We went to Europe, and we went to the Far East, and... Uh, South America, and all, of course the United States, everywhere they had army bases. So it was quite an experience. Having mentioned Dinah Washington, but I was passing under the bridge uh, in San Francisco on the boat going to uh, Okinawa, and guess who was playing on the boat? What a difference a day made by Dinah Washington. Oh. I heard that song some Miss Ruth Jones. I said, boy, oh boy, does that bring back memories. What a story. She could sing. You've shown us many a good time in this music world. Thank you, Jimmy Hamilton. Thank you very much, Betty. My pleasure. You've been listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, hosted and produced by Patty Peterson. Executive producer, Michelle Jansen. The featured musicians for the Jazz Legends are backed by the house band, which is Phil Aaron on piano, Gordon Johnson on the bass, and Phil Hay on drums. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Miles Hansen at Creation Audio and Ricky Peterson at the Workhouse Studios. Special thanks to Electrovoice Microphones. Minnesota Jazz Legends The Elders is funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is a production of KBEM. Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm your host, Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we are very lucky to have many jazz musicians and singers who have performed for most of their lives and some right into their 80s and 90s. It's always amazing to hear their stories, and in this show, we will hear from several jazz legends from previously recorded interviews and live concert performances. We'll learn about their start in the jazz scene, their high points and challenges, and finally, their continued passion for this art form. Our musical guests are familiar to many, and we hope that by the end of this broadcast, you will know them even better. I invite you to sit back and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends. Our next Minnesota jazz legend is pianist and vocalist Nancy Lovgren Lewandowski. She started playing and singing in many clubs and in many television and radio settings. We'll hear from her about her life in music right here in the Twin Cities. Ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Lovgren. Here's a tune I've always loved, Lullaby of Birdland.
That's Nancy Lovegren Lewandowski. Were you born in the Twin Cities? St. Paul. Did you come up in a family of music? My mother was a classically trained pianist and a classically trained vocalist. And my brother is a saxophone and clarinet player. Did he do more popular music? My brother did a lot of big band stuff. Tell me about when you started playing piano and talk about who came to the front door. <laughs> An accordion salesman. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of imagine my dad instigated it. So did you start by playing accordion? I did. And you segued over into piano how? Well, I just kept on dabbling at it. Then I studied it quite a few years, too. And this was when I was a teenager, and they had a three-piece band that was union members. One of the members said to me, why don't you join union? And that was just like heaven to me. And so I joined, and I've been playing ever since, uh, 15. It unfolded into a fabulous career where you did radio, you did television. Talk about some of that. I did this uh, play, Much Ado About Nothing. And then I did, we got a bingo in St. Paul. It was quite an experience. I didn't realize how much work went into it. You'd start at the very beginning, stop, start, start, over beginning. Of course, the musicians had to be prepared and stay for the whole thing. Oh my gosh. So did that cure you for theater? <laughs> it made me so respectful how they could learn all those lines in the first place, you know, how they could adapt after it was scripted and then they had to change it. So talk about getting back into playing jazz, because I know you worked with Percy Hughes for a long time, too. Yeah, I had been playing with a girl's band that wasn't too good. <laughs> and one of the girl's boyfriends says, I'm going to bring you to someone that's really good. So I brought to a rehearsal that was Percy's. And I thought, oh, if I could play with something like that. And years later, Joe Rucci and I had been playing together, and he was playing at the Ambassador. And Percy was playing there, and uh, the organist got sick, and so they needed a sub. So Joe called me, and I auditioned, and I got the job. So I finally got a chance to play with Percy. Percy Hughes, a wonderful band leader, saxophonist, and he sang great, too. And he's part of the Jazz Legends first series show. What an honor to be able to work with him. A highlight for you. Can you tell us a highlight? Oh, there's so many of them. You know, just to play with jazz musicians is such a thrill for me. You were married to a musician as well. Yes, I was married to an accordion player. He played at the guest house for a long, long time. And then he died, and I played at the guest house for four years. Did you work with your husband? Once in a while. Yeah, only if people paid us. <laughs> <laughs> do you have another number you can do for us, Nancy? Yes, this is called There Will Never Be Another You.
You are listening to the Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. Our next Minnesota Jazz Legend guest is Herb Pilhofer. He's a pianist, a composer, and the former owner of the legendary recording studio Sound 80. I got into music in Germany, you know, I grew up during the war. And after the war, the exposure to Americans, to everything American from spaghetti to, I remember seeing the, the, the movie Rhapsody in Blue, in black and white, and some GIs took me to the theater 10 times, you know. It was a discovery that I can't describe. I mean, hearing American music. Do I started a band and I studied piano and loved jazz and we had a tremendous love for trying to sound like Teddy Wilson and Benny Goodman and Lee Konitz on one hand and I mean we copied everything under the sun because we, we loved it, you know. Yes. But long story short, I loved American jazz and I, I, I there was a point where it just simply wanted to live here. And then I married a young lady who was from uh, this part of the country, actually, and we we got married quickly and came over here together, ah. and then I had two children and all of that. And in 1954, it was quite humbling coming here, seeing or hearing the caliber of musicians. I mean, the level of playing here and the level of musicianship was so much higher than what I had experienced over there in terms of jazz playing. Yes, okay. So, you know, I went to the U and I pretty much started from scratch. I got into writing and playing and had a jazz trio then. And we, we went to school from 8 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon and played at night from 7 to 1 o'clock. And, and, and it was a glorious time in a way. We had uh, the, the jazz trio led to forming an octet and we played concerts and traveled around and this was all with people like Dave Carr and uh, Bob Crea I don't oh, know if you sure, remember those names and and a lot of wonderful wonderful players at that time uh, you were playing some great jazz clubs and what yeah, weren't you even playing well, in, a place called oh, yes, Herbs yes that was the first club we played in it was a small place on Fourth and Marquette, there was quite an active number of clubs around that would sort of support different kinds of jazz groups. Can you remember some of the names of the clubs? Well, Freddy's was one, Herb's was one, and uh-huh. we ended up just being stuck in Herb's and Freddy's, but, you know, it was good. Were you ever in a position where you were working in a nightclub and were the gangsters prevalent ever in that time frame? Now that you mentioned this, there was a club on Nicollet Avenue called the, the Hoop-de-Doo. Bob Davis was uh, had a jazz quartet in there. And I remember this was in 54 or so. I got called a couple of times to substitute for the piano player. And the warning I got was, don't sit with your back to the audience. Wow. I I don't know what that literally meant, but I I watched out for myself. And and the hoop-de-doo was a a bit on the rough side there. Ah. Those were the days. You eventually got into recording studio work. To me, a studio was like a dark room for a photographer. 
you could do things and structure and shape music, the outcome is different than live playing. Even though in the early days we thought it was absolutely fantastic when we had four tracks to work with, and now you can have 200 tracks if that's what you want. But the studio to me was a tool. Two or three of us, Tom Jung, Scott Rivard, and Gary Erickson, who died, unfortunately, quite a few years ago, we got together and we had a few thousand dollars. We went to a bank and put on a tie and talked them into help us finance a studio. And the city gave us a lot. And fortunately, these were very well-trained, highly trained technical people. And we put the studio together, being blessed basically by ignorance in the sense that we didn't listen to accountants or attorneys. We did what we wanted. Somehow we made a living off it. And after a while, the word got out and we had people come here because the studio got a little bit of a reputation. You know, when a guy like Bob Dylan comes here and records half an album, he didn't pay for groceries necessarily, but the reputation that came out of that was worth quite a lot. And the name of that studio? Sound 80. <laughs> we started that in 1962 or so. I, I think we stopped it when it was at its best, the early 80s. And, and at that point, I sort of saw the handwriting on the wall. You know, it was okay. shifting. When studios like NPR came in, and it was financed in a sense, and, and uh, they could right. offer studio time, and it became economically just really difficult to support a big studio like Sound80. It's as simple as that. Tell me some of the big names that people would recognize that came through. Well, for a long stint, I recall the time when Cat Stevens came in, and he came in with an entourage of two truckfuls of equipment and his own massage person. And, wow. and I remember they literally bought the studio, so nobody was in there at the time. And I'm not so sure that, that it was the famous names that did it for us. I think we had the benefit also that a couple of directors like Douglas Trumbull, who who did the um, Close Encounters. And he was a sort of an anti-Hollywood guy, and he, he was happy to come here and do things away from Hollywood. And, and we had the benefit of doing experimental surround sound movie tracks that at the time the word surround sound wasn't even coined, so to speak. And Paramount sponsored this. We worked with them for a couple of years, did five, six half-hour films. In those days, linking up film with audio was much more complicated. And uh, I think you spent more time on the technical issues than thinking of good music. Again, I think back of it as just times of discovery. And, and you know, the best thing about it was nobody else had done it and couldn't tell us how to do it, you had to figure out some way to get through it. I've sort of adopted a habit in my life to never say no if somebody asks you to do something. You figure it out how to do it, you know. It doesn't always come off, but it's better to fail trying than to not try, right? When you were creating and orchestrating that music, were you also still embracing your jazz? 
Oh, yes. The jazz thing was in my blood. It, it kind of kept my soul alive a little bit because a lot of the other stuff was commercial work. I don't know, I had big conflicts with that sometimes. I felt I really needed to do other projects to look myself in the mirror. <laughs> so did you use your own recording studio and did you do some jazz projects, some yeah. jazz oh, recordings? Yes, 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 yes. You're listening to the Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, featuring stories from Herb Pilhofer. First project we did was for a label in Chicago called Argo. It was a jazz record yes, label. Yes, sure. We had a jazz trio at the time, bass, guitar, and piano, and we went to Chicago to record it. They gave us five hours in the studio to record an album, and we did it in five wow. hours and, uh, you know, one take, and that's it. And uh, after that, there was the beginning of a recording studio in town, Swedeen Recording Studio. Yes, Bruce Bruce Swedeen, who later on became a guiding engineer for Michael Jackson. And Barbara Streisand. Barb- and yes. did all the Quincy, Quincy Jones. Jones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bruce Swedeen had a studio, and uh, at the time, there were various jazz styles emerging. There was West Coast jazz, there was sort of the cool stuff, and then there was East Coast jazz, there was a little more sort of the Miles Davis sort of thing. And Jordy Hormel, who was the heir to the Hormel fortune, whatever, he was a jazz lover, and he started a, a label called Jazz from the North Coast. So that lasted for maybe in the late 50s. We did a a sort of a big band-based thing where I had the benefit of going to New York and record. I actually had people like John Faddis and Randy Brecker. Wow. I mean, it was glorious. (laughs) That's on on the album called uh, Olympus One. Okay. After that, then we got into this sort of digital period, and and I started to work on on, on the album called Spaces, which there's a lot of Peterson on it. <laughs> Ricky Ricky was very involved. I okay. Lo- I, I love that guy, and and Billy pl- played all, all bass tracks, and and we had large string sections. We did everything under the sun, really, and it, the purpose of the album wasn't so much to do a jazz album, but it was to demonstrate the the capability of the digital technology. So we did a lot of very quiet stuff and, you know, just really did things that showed off what digital can do. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders, featuring stories from Herb Pilhofer. So that ended in 1981-82. Then I was a long period of doing film music and commercial music. And at some point in the 90s, I thought I was losing my love for music. Because I was getting so busy and so, don't, don't know why I'm saying this, but I, I made very good money in those days. And you have to get more out of life than that. So I, I basically stopped. And for many years, I did. I got into photography, and I did a lot of books and did a lot of photography stuff. Oh, you did. And then in about five years ago, six years ago, I formed a little jazz quartet with my son, Michael, and we did a, an, an album, and that was it. And it's been sort of quiet on the musical front until a couple of years ago, and now I'm starting to do a lot of writing again, and uh, I don't know where that leads, but, you know... What was the calling? Why, why a couple of years ago did you say, I'm going to write some more? My son, Christian, married a, a wonderful young lady with a strong Irish background, and I got quite enamored with the authentic Irish stuff, Irish music. Um, and I started to write some stuff for the wedding. You know, it sort of led to, hey, I want to do more of that. I, I, I've been working on, on some compositions since then, actually, and uh, it's uh, for no purpose other than doing it. <laughs> so much of my life has been doing music where somebody said yes or no, or yeah, I like it or I don't like it. And now, you know, I can do it with no restraint because it isn't really for anybody. Do you have words of advice for musicians who love jazz that are up and coming? It's a really dear subject to me. You know, when you get to my age, uh, you kind of want to caution, so to speak, and think of the past years as the good old times. All right. I don't think that way at all. You know, there's no shortcut to it, let's face it. And and that's, that's the merit of it. <laughs> uh, some people can, uh, can play wonderful stuff because... They have this gift of uh, hearing it in, within themselves. And, and, but others, and I count myself in that part, category, you know, you have to learn about harmony and counterpoint and, and, and practice other things. I remember sitting at the piano in Germany with an old 78 of an Art Tatum record and laboriously trying to copy off note for note. You know, it took me a half a year to play the first chorus, maybe. You know, there, there, there's, no, there's no shortcut to it. If you want advice, the advice is think ahead. Think of what the music might be five years from now. Don't do what they're doing now or what they've done five years ago. You know, I went to the University of Minnesota, and I had the benefit of studying with people like Dominic Argento, who is a Pulitzer Prize composer. And, oh. and you wouldn't think of the University of Minnesota as a particularly great music school to go to. As a matter of fact, 99% of the uh, people that had a job to go to few of us who were sort of the lonesome, didn't know where it was going to go. I think sometimes that does you more, that does more for you. There are ways to, to get to so-called success. It's, it's, it's never the sort of clear-cut path. I think in, in our field in music, I think there's, 
It is not so structured. And I mean, a thing that I keep telling myself always is to not just keep looking at this gold on the road, but listening to the left and to the right while I'm going there. The path to so-called success or getting something out of it is the road to get there, not just keep your eye on, on having your picture on Time magazine. You know what my brother Billy says is the wisdom of uncertainty. Yeah, that's there you where go. the best music well, that's, happens. That's and uh, that's that implies willingness to take a risk. Yes, uh, alertness to be open for what you suddenly might hear. Right. That's exactly. That's absolutely perfect way to describe it. Yeah. I remember, in, and this was back in the fifties when I started as a, as a freshman at age 24, so I fell a little bit out of the... And you go through learning, you know, music history and this and this and that, and, and you learn about uh, 16th century choral writing or this and this and that, and you think, what does that have to do with me? Right. Let me tell you, 20 years later, my conclusion has always been, there's never been anything I learned that I couldn't use somewhere along the line. And I regret that I didn't learn more at the time. And by learning, I mean it could be sitting and listening. It could be practicing something on your own. But uh, yeah, there are many paths to it. it. It's not getting a degree out of some. That, that's not necessary. It looks good on the bio to have the degree, but there's something about the life experience, like yeah. uh, you know what yeah. you're saying. And yeah. it's practical application. It's sitting with a master. It's staying alert to what's to the right, to the left, while you're keeping your eye on the goal. Exactly. It's about the awareness in the moment. Right, exactly. Because don't don't worry down there. It's right. Be here. And that's the most difficult thing about improvisation, incidentally, about playing. The less I worried, what am I going to play next, the better it was what I was playing now. What a great line, Herb. You know, I'm totally grateful for what music allowed me to do in my life. I mean, I made a living at it. More than many people who have much more to offer than I do can say, I had great experiences. I had the benefit of working with so many good people. Yeah, I'm totally at peace with all of that. I wish I had another 20 years to do it better. listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Our next Minnesota jazz legend is saxophonist Dave Carr. Hey, Dave Carr, thank you for joining me on this cool thing called uh, the Jazz Legends. Thanks a lot for asking me, because uh, it, it is fun to, to talk about nostalgic things and some of the things that keep your musical passion going all through the years, you know. It's great. 
I want to talk about uh, you and your musical life. And, you know, I always start by saying, were you born in the Twin Cities? Uh, no, I wasn't. Uh, came here in, in the summer of 1954. I was born in Vancouver, B.C., in 1930, incidentally. So, and my dad was a virtuoso on the alto saxophone. And in his travels, of course, he was working with dance bands, and he ended up in Vancouver met my mother, who, with her sister, had an act doing little showbiz stuff, and uh, they hooked up maybe at about 1928. Then I was born in 1930, and uh, with all of the big depression that was going on in the United States, he had been told about England. And so in 1933, we moved to England and lived in London. And my dad did a lot of stuff for Elstree Studios and worked in the films and worked for the BBC. And How long were you in England? We were there until on September 3rd, 1939, Chamberlain said a state of war exists between Great Britain and Germany. And the air raid sirens went off. And they apparently had prepared for this because uh, our cricket field had been dug up and shelters had been built. At that point... I was just turning nine years old the day after that, on September 4th, my birthday. The whole World War II start ruined my birthday, you know. There was no party. <laughs> so they began bombing London. We were about 12 miles outside of in a neighborhood called Edgware. It wasn't the Blitz yet, but they were bombing London every day. And sometime in November, maybe mid-November, we got the last American boat out. I remember standing by the railings, and as we were making full steam ahead, this destroyer was circling around us at a tremendous speed and got us out of the uh, area. But Where did you land? We landed in New York. Couldn't really stay there. We went to Winnipeg. He had five brothers and two sisters. And oh, my gosh. So we had a lot of family up there, and I learned how to skate in the streets in the winter. So it must have been November when we landed. By the time we got to Winnipeg, it was winter. So you're back in Canada, and what are you, a young teenager then at this no, point? No, at this or? point, I am just turned nine. So by that time, when we landed here, I'm staying with relatives. My dad's establishing what he can in New York without us being in the way, and lived up there. I went, started fourth grade there. And we finally established enough work so that he could send for us, and we started living in New York in 1940. That was it. Started taking piano lessons when I was around 10. My dad, uh, being a musician, knew some good teachers, and I ended up with a very good teacher and, and studied piano, classical piano, till I was about 18. And uh, by that time, though, it was hard to get me to try to practice any piano because I had discovered the saxophone when I was about 14. My dad would bring home records, and he used to like to listen to the Nat Cole's trio was big, and, he, and there were 78 records, and my dad brought those home, and Stan Kenton's band, strangely enough, Boy, he had a long run because uh, that was a popular band in 1944-45 with June Christie singing. So he brought those things home. Now, on the flip side of one of them, Vito Musso, tenor player, playing a solo on chart that had been written from on Come Back to Sorrento, very romantic. And then a tempo change into swing. And it was a whole record of his soloing. And when I heard him play in the tenor like that, it just... Uh, I got to do that. You know, that was what attracted me first. I heard that, and uh, then it was nothing but trouble ahead. Did you then ask for lessons? No. You just fell into I it? I kept taking the piano lessons. I'm now wow. 14, and uh, didn't take lessons because my dad, not really a teacher, but he was a great player, and he got me started. And what he told me, this is what you do. This is your embouchure, how it's formed. Uh, this is, we want to fill things up. We want to use your diaphragm uh, to support the tone. He'd say to me, uh, can you blow hot air? I said, sure. He said, go, just show me. And he put up his wrist, and I go, ah. 
Oh, it's warm air. It's good. Now blow cold air. Cold. Now mix them up. Go. Now feel what's going on in your tummy. Feel that's your diaphragm working. And that's the kind of air you want to put into the horn. Boom. All right. No sense saying that again. So this is all in about an hour sitting with him. Probably told me practically everything I needed to know. I learned how to jump from flute, clarinet, saxophone, one embouchure. That was all I needed. Were you using his instruments to learn? Yes, yeah. You were. Oh, yeah. He did give me a tenor back then. Great. I have to say something interesting, and that is that Herb Pilhoffer's conversation, what can you tell the up-and-coming musicians? He just said, don't think you're going to gain everything from college. No. Sit with a master like a Dave Carr. Oh, nice. And you're sitting here telling me you sat with a master, yeah, right. your dad. That's right. You joined the union, you're 18 years old, in oh, New yeah. York. Yes, right, okay. Played with a little quintet there and uh, went downtown and heard about an audition with a big band, Sonny Dunham's band, and um, the uh, manager of the band would say, okay, now, why don't you go sit in and play the tenor on this tune here? So I had just turned 19, and I came and sat in on the hot tenor chair and played a couple of tunes got up, some other people came to sit in, and then he came over to me and said, Sonny wants to hear you once more. Played the same tune, wanted to see if I had played the same chorus or something, and maybe, I don't know what he wanted to see, but I played again, and I got the job, so off I went on the road. <laughs> You're listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, featuring stories from saxophonist Dave Carr. I ended up being stationed at Aberdeen Proving Grounds in Maryland. I went through the normal basic training, and near the end of it, uh, everybody was going to get infantrymen or a cook or whatever. You had a number that told anybody in the military what your job was, you know. And I was on KP about middle of the morning, we had finished breakfast, we cleaned up everything, we were going to get ready for lunch. I, I went to the cook and I asked him if I could get off to go to the band area because I wanted to get in the band. And he was very reticent about that, to say the least. He said, I just want to hear how hard you're going to work. I don't want to know about that stuff. I said, geez, you know, I, I'll tell you what, I, I can give you 20 bucks if you'll let me go over there, you know. And he said, uh, oh, just give me 10. And I said, no, here, take the whole 20. <laughs> I just was willing to do anything. And I went over to the band barracks. They woke up the band master. He came in, set up a rhythm section for me, found a tenor sax, played a few tunes. We were a mixed band, black and white guys, and uh, and we were touring the uh, colored theaters in uh, like Washington, D.C., the Howard and uh, the Regal. And, and we had Elvis Gerald with us. But now you're talking... 1951 then, and... Uh, Ella, you just um, mentioned? Yes, she was on this tour with us. Segregation was in full swing. Never noticed it in New York. Here I am, worshipping Dizzy and Bird and going to Birdland, listening to these people play, and white, black, green, blue, whoever, the, the great right. players. And That's your training ground. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And no hint of uh, anything. <clears throat> and then to go down in Washington, D.C. to play the Howard, the Afro-American musicians were not allowed to stay in the downtown hotels in 1951 in Washington, D.C., nation's capital. We did lead a sheltered life like at that period of time. I mean, you're talking, I was 19, 20 years old, and uh, I didn't know beans about politics or care about it, and I was busy really trying to 
see how these guys could play so great and maybe steal some of that and, yeah. and figure it out and practice and just play as much as they can. And all of a sudden, zoom, you're jerked out of that. And Had to be alarming. It was extremely uh, How long did you serve? Two years. You were drafted for two years. I oh, said, you were? I got out in 53. But then in New York, it was uh, ridiculous as usual. Uh, I was just uh, going hearing Charlie Parker with strings. Didn't have the oboe player uh, that was on the recording, who was Mitch Miller. A pop music fame later, you know. Not the same guy. Yes, yeah, same guy. Come on. He was a wonderful oboe player, yeah. Just Friends and all that stuff that he did. Uh, uh, Mitch Miller's the oboe player. But there was a wonderful little string section and, and the oboe, and they did all the charts. Uh, and there we were in Berlin watching them with strings. And uh, then, of course, I saw him many times with the quartet. First time I heard Bird uh, was probably maybe even as early as maybe late 47, when I was about 17, 18, I... Birdland had opened up by that time, and uh, I remember walking down the stairs. There was the little box office at the foot of the stairs, and I could hear Charlie Parker playing. I was well aware of him, and I, I went to see him the first time I saw him. He was on stage playing, and it was a pretty remarkable feeling to go down there and walk in that room. After hearing him only on 78s and then play them and get about three and three choruses of Bird because they only lasted three and a half minutes, those records, and then to sit there in the club and hear him go, you know, and... Did he ever hear you play? No. Did you meet him? Yes. Shook his hand. Didn't wash the hand for a couple of weeks. I'm sure. <laughs> I hear well, Bird is playing tonight. We're going to go over there. We were at a jam session or something. Come on, we'll go hear Bird. And I went over there, and uh, he was off the stand. He was near the door, and the person I was with uh, had met him several times. It was always it was pretty friendly with him, and it was like... Uh, Gave him a big hug. Hey, Bird, you know, and then, this is Davy Carr. And then I, he said hi and shook, shook my hand, and I said, hi, Bird, and did a bow, you know. Oh, <laughs> wow. Would he be your number one guy? At that point in time, he was, Okay. Yes. Yeah. I'd heard Lester Young play all during the 40s that I was aware of and uh -huh. the, the early 50s. Loved it. But I'd never heard him play with Basie's band from 1937-38 when he was a young man and held the horn in the air like nobody played that way. An innovator. The people I had heard, like Woody's Four Brothers Band, when they came east from uh, the coast, uh, saw that band at Sunnyside Gardens with uh, Stan Getz playing lead tenor, Zoot Sims, Al Cohn, and uh, Serge Chaloff on baritone, trumpet section, people like Red Rodney, Connie Condoli, Ernie Royal. Lou Levy was playing piano with that band that night. He had Terry Gibbs playing vibes, too. Wow. But I you know, stood right in front of that band and saw that thing happening. And they all played this hip, modern-sounding way. And, and then when I heard 1938, Lester Young, that's where they got it. That's where Dexter Gordon was influenced. And Bird himself was influenced because Bird in 1940-41 was with Jay McShann's band, just starting his career. He's 20 years old. And when you hear some of those early recordings, you can hear this voice coming out that you never heard anything play like that before. When you finally heard Clap Hands, Here Comes Charlie or 12th Street Rag with 1938 band Count Basie and heard those tenor solos, it was like, uh, wow, you know, my hair stood up in the back of my neck. Did you ever try to emulate those solos? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. What it is, as it was put to me, was uh, listen to those solos, learn them so you can sing them. Don't just pick the needle up and play two bars, you know, but, and then try and play it on your horn just like you heard it, so you know what it feels like to play a great solo, you know? 
fact. That was Who told you, you that advice? That was Lee Konitz. I heard Redden Downbeat. He was starting to give lessons in 1949. I had heard that band at Birdland, and it, was, it knocked me out. I'd never heard anything like that before. The Lenny Tristano group with uh, Warren Marsh, Lee Konitz, Billy Bauer playing guitar. Jeff Morton was the drummer. When I heard that, I was knocked out all over again. And what they did on just before they'd taken intermission is something that two saxophone players, Lee and Warren, played a two-part Bach invention. And they do that, and it linked right up with the kind of music they were playing with the quintet. And I was like, oh. Did I, the heavens open and the rays of sunshine again, came in? Again, more yeah, rays right. of sunshine. Of course. It's just amazing experience after amazing experience. I was so lucky to be there at this uh, seminal time. Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders, featuring stories from saxophonist Dave Carr. Too Marvelous for Words. It was a tune he loved. And uh, I said, gee, I don't know if I know that. Lee. Well, play something. You know, I did. I played a tune or two. Mm-hmm. And my joke is there were only 25 tunes that people played. And it's close to being the truth when you think about it because what Charlie Parker played was a lot of blues, a lot of tunes based on I Got Rhythm, and then tunes like Out of Nowhere, Just Friends, and about, and about 20 other standards. Check it out sometime. You know what I mean? That was it. And consequently... Nobody was writing originals except some of these great people like Charlie Parker, but they were all based on standard tunes to get around copyright laws. I'd go to Baltimore on a weekend break just to check the town out and go to a place, have a drink. There's a band playing. I'd get friendly with them and say, you want to sit in? I said, sure. And I knew every tune they played. They just played out of this repertoire. of So a lot of sitting in was easy. 
the first time it stopped was when natural life appeared, the longhorn. In Minneapolis. Yes, and bring your horn down, and you can't sit in because, number one, they wrote all those tunes. Number two, you don't know any of them, and it's a new way of playing anyhow. To me, that's the end of the sitting in because then everybody took over that approach, you know what I mean? I want to know how you got to Minneapolis. I finally moved up here, and uh, uh, it was during the summer, came to visit. I was intending to go back to Manhattan, and um, I fell in with some of the local musicians right away during that summer, and then I met the younger jazz guys at the time. I met Bobby Crea, and uh, I met... Percy Hughes, who had a 13-piece band playing at the Flame Cafe at that point in time. Percy showed me some stuff. I mean, he was just a wonderful guy. And and uh, he was with Judy Perkins, his wife, who sang with the band. But um, there was a club called the Hoop-de-Doo. What a name for a club. But it was a, it was a jazz joint, you know. And it was just up the street from 14th and Nicolette which was where the flame was. It was a small town then. Um, to some people, it's still a small town, you know. Uh, How yes. is it that you stayed? Because I enrolled in summer school. Man, I, I wanted to learn about music, you know. And, and then I started having a good time here, met all these people. There was a marvelous piano player, Lou Levy, who was not playing at the time, but he was living here. Go have martinis with Lou Levy and go check out Russ Moore playing in a little club and uh, Conti Condoli was in town for a while playing at a place called Allery's in St. Paul and we'd all be on Calhoun Beach there in the sun you know and walking around and kind of a nice scene Dave Frischberg and Dave uh, was an astounding piano player he hadn't written one note of a song at all he was just uh, playing the hell out of the piano you know and uh, we had a little band we had a little quartet we put together and so I just was having a good time that summer and and uh, I stayed on. Was it the University of Minnesota, first of all? Yeah, it was. That you went yeah, to? Okay. it was. And I was very impressed with the teaching staff there. That fall, I started playing gigs around here, and uh, I decided to save the money and not so expensive, and uh, I stayed on at the U. Got in an automobile, going to go to a gig with a guy named Dick Maw, who was an entrepreneur, played drums, had a lot of work, and was and had some other good musicians playing with him, and I said, where are we going? We're not going to the, where the gig. He said, no, we're going to pick up the girl singer. And it turned out to be my wife-to-be. You met your wife, you got married in the late 50s, and you said you were working with Bob Davis? Yes, yeah, he had a quartet in town. Uh, there was Stu Anderson on bass and Billy Blackstead, a very legendary kind of drummer from around town here. And Bob was a piano player from Litchfield, Minnesota and liked to play fast tempos and was a jazz piano player, you know. And Bobby Crea was the saxophone player with him. We stayed at the Point Supper Club for about nine months, and uh, it was a nice long engagement. How many nights a week were you working with? It was six nights a week. It was, okay. Yeah, nice steady playing. We did make a recording with Bob. We we went to Chicago. We played at the Blue Note, and uh, Bob Davis got in a little quarrel with the bass player that was traveling with us, and ended up using a different bass player. He got John Frigo to play the bass on the recording. And then he hooked me up with a commercial being done with Ramsey Lewis Trio in a studio, told him about me, and then they wanted, they needed a saxophone player, and they put me on the date. So I played my first commercial there with Ramsey Lewis down in Chicago. So you came, you were in Chicago just for a period of time and came just back? Just a very short period okay. of time. I went a few other places, too. And when I came back, I got off that merry-go-round. Thank you. 
You're listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders, featuring stories from saxophonist Dave Carr. I was at the Guthrie Theater, which opened in 63. I'd known Herb since the 50s, you know. Herb Pilhofer. Yeah, he came here in 55, I think. You worked with him at Herb's Bar, though, too. Was yeah, that in the 50s? Did. Yeah, that was, yeah. sure. The, he had the house trio there with the same guy that owned the Point Supper Club, oh. Herb Klein. So, But Herb would have Bob Pope, and he'd have Ted Ewart and the trio, and then Sonny Stitt would come to town, and, and the guest would come in, and then the trio would accompany them. I would play with that trio, too. So I knew her from all that time, and we got pretty close. And by the time the Guthrie Theater opened in 63, Herb was hired to be the musical director. And uh, he said, you know, I'd like to use you on everything, really. There were no synthesizers. So I I was very handy because I could play flute and alto flute and piccolo, and I also made instruments that he used. It was a real lift for our whole family, you know. Uh, It was nice, you know. And I did that up until about 1969, 1970. And then I found a little office space because what had happened is during the Guthrie years, Herb was doing a lot of writing and he said, you know, I'm going back to Nuremberg to visit my family. And so I left your name with some of the agency people and if they get in a bind, they'll give you a call because I said you could write something for them, you know. Name some of the jiggles you did. We did uh, a pizza commercial for um, Tombstone Pizza that ran for a long time. It's a small town, homegrown, made the way you make your own pizza. Tombstone. It's a ladle unloaded up with lots of mozzarella on the pizza. Tombstone. And in 2000, when I turned 70, I wrapped it up. By that time, in 2000, got back to what I really wanted to do when I was 15, and that is play my horn all the time. And I'm playing better than I was in those other days because that, that's what I've been devoting myself to. So it's its all been constant growth. It doesn't just stand still. It's great. I think it's been maybe, maybe for sure, 1961, 62, I started getting calls from the orchestra when Henry Mancini came to town. They needed somebody to play the Pink Panther and the Peter Gunn solo, that kind of thing, with the orchestra. So I got the call to do that. And subsequently, I kept doing his show. And finally, it would be just like his office would, you know, Hank wants to know if you can do the such and such a date there with the, with the orchestra. Sure, okay. I relish that very much because I love that sitting in the middle of that orchestra. The thing about me with the horn is that the longer you're with it, the, the more familiar, of course. And if I'm feeling a little low or something or disconnected, maybe because I haven't had some work, well, I'll get the horn out and in 15 minutes, I'm okay. I love playing it. The great therapist. You think about your career, is there something that stands out as a highlight? I think some of the highlights are definitely anything that makes you feel good becomes like a highlight. If it makes you feel real good, it's a big highlight, don't you think, you know? And uh, so one of the highlights was when I first began being hired to to work with the orchestra. I started doing it in 1961. I'm still showing up. And so that's been a very, I'm very proud of that, you know? Yes. uh, Also, the fact that I've always been playing with just the, any of the musicians that I really admire and love in, in our town here, and it's just great, you know. High point, um, of course, I've been doing Doc Severinsen's stuff since he started becoming that pop music director and do all the Christmas shows, and that's been very nice. Uh, I enjoyed that immensely. Uh, jazz-wise, you know, high point always, I'm talking about Bobby Peterson. When I got to play with him on those Wednesday nights at the Luxford with uh, Keith Boyles, Dick Borlusi, every time we played together was a, a high point. I'm what you call a journeyman musician. I play 
what's needed to play a great deal of the time in order to make a living. And uh, I've talked about that. I know some of the greatest jazz players that I've heard uh, have one way of playing, and they play that way, and that's what you get. Uh, they're not journeymen. They are jazz musicians, totally. So what, what I've survived on is some versatility. It's been my mainstay. Um, I can play some hot flute. I can play in an earlier style. I can play some Dixieland on the clarinet if you need it. Uh, but if I'm left to my own devices, then I play what I want to play, and I guess then that's me for that night. If you could give advice to someone who's passionate and wants to try to do something in the music business, what would you say? Actually, I don't like to give advice. I, I've only encountered that a few times. Uh, my response would be to listen to them play and ask them, do you like what you're doing? Do you like the way you're playing? If they say, yeah, I do, uh, I say, great, well, then stay with it. It's difficult to make a living in music. If you're not damn good at it, then it's still going to be a lot of fun. Do you love playing the saxophone? Do you love playing music? Oh, yeah. And do you still have fun? I still do. I really do. Listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, hosted and produced by Patty Peterson. Executive producer, Michelle Jansen. The musicians are backed by the Phil Aaron Trio, with Phil Aaron on piano, Gordon Johnson on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Miles Hansen at Creation Audio, and Ricky Peterson at the Workhouse Studios. Special thanks to Electro Voice Microphones. Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, is funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is a production of KBEM.